Thank you, Jay and Lindsay and Lindsay and Nick and bringing energy into the place. That's good. Well, where did Brian go? Did he go out the back? He went that way. Well, look what my kids tried to dress me in this morning. Now, listen, they, they wanted me to drape it over like this, but we are too humble to do that, okay? So we'll just put it over here. Uh, no. You know, I was so aggravated. If they had uh, <clears throat> if they'd quit at halftime, I would have wore the jersey today. That's the kind of deal they had with me. But, And you all know that I am a Tech fan, so please, until they play West Virginia, I can't turn on my home state. You wouldn't either. So anyway, I just had to get that out of the way, okay? We did win, barely. But uh, there's always next year, isn't there? We'll probably get beat. Anyway, on to something that really matters, and that is God's Word. So take your Bible this morning and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3. I have a lot to go over, and I'm going to try to get through it quickly. I was going to talk to you this morning about different things going on in current events and how they relate to spiritual warfare. I'll just touch on a few, you know, and I'm going to do something after the missions conference is over. You got Christmas, and then you got the first of the year. But let me just say, we're living in an interesting time, to say the least. And I don't know how much people keep up with this and that, but everything that's boiling in the world today tells God's people that our antennas should be up. Now, I am pre-trib, meaning I believe Jesus returns before the tribulation period. I do believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period where God is going to turn his wrath on the nation of Israel to break them and to humble them. That's the primary purpose for the tribulation period. And the rest of the world will, in fact, suffer some of the judgment, but primarily it is on the nation of Israel to break their stubbornness and to make them turn and accept Jesus as their Savior. But in God's word, you see things that line up that tell us what is going on. Don't look to America to determine end-time scenario. America could rot to the ground and be gone for 200 years, and it wouldn't impact anything with the epicenter of the world, which is the nation of Israel. But God does say some things that are actually happening, we can see it on the precursor today. What are some of those things? Let me just share a few in light of where we're going today, because most people don't know this. Most Christians don't know this. Hardly any of the world knows it, okay? But God's Word has said this, Ezekiel 38, 39, Joel, different Old Testament prophets talk about it. I want to do a whole series on it because, man, it's happening right before our face. What does God say is going to happen? He says that somehow the nation, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, and also Iran, Turkey, and other nations will align together and they're going to do certain things. They're going to try to go into the land. And God, in fact, says he will take a hook and put in their jaw and he will drag them there for something. Something will allure them. What will it be? We don't have any idea. Will it be oil? Will it be fine metal? We don't know. But the bottom line is God's going to pull them down into that land. And then he is going to judge them. 
Israel will have no part in judgment. It will be a supernatural judgment from God that comes down on those nations, Gog the leader, Magog the followers, and all of those other Tubal and all those nations that had old ancient names now have new modern names. They would now come in and God would wipe them out. Then what's going to happen? There will be a ruler who will rule over a western confederacy of nations. This is about ten nations. The book of Daniel tells us there are ten who align together and then they'll have one man who rules over them and he is called the what? The Antichrist or the man of sin. What is he going to do? He's going to come down upon the nation of Israel and then all of a sudden the nation of Egypt is going to try to take Israel's side and the Antichrist is going to fight. Then he's going to set up his kingdom there in the middle of the Holy Land and then you had the tribulation period, the middle of it, And then you have God's judgment. Now, let me say, that is a lot of stuff. And all I'm saying is I can't cover it in one message. But I'm telling you, China, Russia, Iran, Turkey, Pakistan, and Afghanistan are all going to line. All of this that we're seeing with the airstrip and all that, see, I'm going to get off on it. That is a huge player in the aligning of the nations. It is, it is happening, folks, I'm telling you, right before our eyes. There will be, and God, you know, God will use radical Islam. Listen to me. He will use radical Islam as a catalyst to go in and overtake the nation of Israel. You and I are witnessing this today. Yes, it's been around since 600. Yes, I understand that. But never has it climaxed to the level that it has today. So interesting. We live in unbelievable times. That is over there. Now, let's come back and talk about current events here. Right here in America. Right here in our nation. What, what is this? What is all this stuff that's going on in our life? Well, I read this and this is what prompted me to address this issue. This is the article that came out by Barna Research who was hired by the Council for Biblical Worldview. Council Center for Biblical Worldview. Listen to what it said. Did you know that 81% of those who regularly attend an evangelical church think that they have a biblical worldview, but in reality, only 21% do? Now stop. What is, what is the difference between evangelical and fundamental? Well, I don't have time to get into that. But let me just use this term, evangelical, Those who preach good news, okay? That's so generic. Please forgive me for being vague, but I'm just throwing it out there. People who believe the Bible are willing to work with some other people, but they preach the gospel. All right, so 81% of those who regularly attend a church that we would say preaches the Bible, out of of that, only 21% have a biblical worldview when it comes to issues such as voting, religious liberty, Abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Now, what is a biblical worldview? Well, that is where you see the world and the events and things that happen in what? In the things I talked about, voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. When you see those things through the lens of God's Word. Not opinion, not what somebody says, not what you were taught in school but truth from God's Word. 
Only 21% of people who attend church, an evangelical church, not a liberal church, an evangelical church, only 21% have a biblical worldview. Now hold on, because it gets even worse. Out of Americans, adults, out of American adults, not including the church now, okay, but just Americans in general, 51% of Americans claim to have a biblical worldview. However, research indicates, are you ready for this, that only 6% of the adult population actually has a biblical worldview as it relates to voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. That means if you're in a room of 100 people, out of those 100 people, about 6 will see things from God's perspective. Now, that seems bleak, doesn't it? You know, we, at one time we thought we were 50%, you know, in the country that had a biblical worldview. Then that narrowed down. And then that narrowed down. Are you listening to me? This research indicates 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Now, that seems bleak. Hold on. Hold on. It gets even worse. 80% of born-again Christians claim to have a biblical worldview, but only 19% have one. You say, no, what? what, what? Don't all these numbers out here, what? Listen, 74% of conservatives claim to have a biblical worldview, but only 16% do. By the way, I listened to a podcast Monday for an hour and 32 minutes. I subscribed to the Daily Wire. I wanted to hear Ben Shapiro. My kids just rave about him. Lost as yesterday. He is a conservative. Thank God for him. But I listened to Ben and all those guys that got on this talk and they, and they were trying to argue for morality and right and wrong. Are you hearing me? They were trying to argue for what was right and what was wrong. And they were all trying to appeal to truth, but they could not use the Bible. And they argued and argued and argued and not one of them went down and said, God's word is absolute truth and that is how we have morality. That is how we know right from wrong. They couldn't do it. They argued for this and that and one of them had this opinion. That opinion. That's what this says. 74% of conservatives say that they have a biblical worldview, but only 16% do. Now here's the one that really was a poof, punch in the gut. 44% of millennials claim to have a biblical worldview. But guess what the percentage is that does? Four. Four percent. So they write this. Clearly, there is a gap between perception and reality for most Americans. There are massive inconsistencies between what American adults believe and what the Bible teaches about those views. These results underscore the urgent need for biblical worldview teaching. We need to pound on this. So let me say today, as you find your way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that Paul explains to Timothy, this young man, what he's going to face in the latter days. The title of today's message is Hearts of Darkness. And by the way, this is where we are today. Followers of Jesus always have encountered problems. 
and they always will, both in people and circumstances. Listen to the text today. I'm in 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. And this is what Paul tells this young man. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? That was weak. Okay. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, think about this for just a minute. I'm not here to preach bad news. I'm not here to make you feel bad. I'm going to give you some hope before we leave, okay? But in order to paint this picture, I can't paint it all with bright colors. I have to tell the truth. And this is what God's Word says. Paul says, Timothy, I want to tell you something, son. You're ministering in the last days. And in these last days, there's going to be trouble, and you're going to have people and circumstances that are going to be troublesome to you, and you're going to be persecuted for standing up for a biblical worldview. But don't you dare give up hope, because we win. Now, what does Paul go on to tell this young man? He basically tells him, verse 1 of chapter 3, But indeed, understand this. Some translation says, know this. The idea here is uh, like the Marine Corps. And when you're in the Marine Corps, they shout out on the loudspeaker, Hear this! You know what that means? You better pay attention. And most Marines will tell you that they heard this over and over and over again, but they'll still say every day, hear this. That's an idea that, you know, truth is not necessarily always new. And we don't always know new. Sometimes we have to be retold the same things again. And this is what Paul's telling Timothy. You've heard this a hundred times, but I'm going to put it down right clear. Understand this. Instruction to be aware. Understand this, that in the last days, in the last days, I put up here on the screen, this is the time period that had begun with the coming of Christ. If you read Hebrews chapter 1, in the last days, He was revealed. Paul tells Timothy here in this passage that he's already in the last days, but it seems like there is a progression that after Christ left and is waiting to return, that this is what's going to happen. Evil men will grow worse and worse and worse. And this is what's going to take place. In the last days, difficult times, or times of difficulty, or perilous times shall come. This has the idea of people are going to continue to push further and further away from God. Now, We see this, by the way, I'm just trying to break this out. We see this happening at a scale unlike any other since the Reformation. What was the Reformation? Back in 1500, 1600, the Bible was actually revived. Churches began to challenge the Roman Catholic doctrine of all these things that they held. And this broke out in a branch of new learning, new denominations, new teaching. People were getting saved. Great awakenings took place. Never, never did that happen in the times past. It impacted Europe. It traveled over into England. And then it came across into what we are now called America. 
In the first great awakening, the second great awakening, people began to hear the gospel of Jesus. They began to get saved. Since that time, there has never been a departure from God as there is today. An article just came out this past week about who put God in the Supreme Court. Did you all see that? If not, you should look at it. Right in the New York Times. Who put God in the Supreme Court? In other words, they knew what was coming up about this abortion bill, and they didn't want God being part of the equation of whether it was right or wrong. So who put God there? Well, why don't you just go outside the Supreme Court and look up? And, and look right over top of where they walk past every day, and where you see Moses sitting in the center holding the Word of God, the law of God. Why don't, why don't you just stop right there? Well, who put God there? The founders. That's who put Him there. You've tried to write Him out by telling crazy history. And nobody wants to hear that anymore, but they're hearing it. Why? Because they can't stop it. In the last days, perilous times shall come. Now, look at the very first characteristic of perilous times. I'm in verse 2. People will be lovers of self. Now, just hold on right there. Paul has a way of just mm, hitting it right, right square in the center. What is the problem? It is the love of self. You know, God gave the nation of Israel ten commandments, right? Where do you find them? Exodus chapter 20. You, you can look there if you want. The first four, no gods before me, no graven images, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and honor the Sabbath. The first four were directed toward who? God. And then you have the next six, honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't lie, you know, down the list, don't commit adultery. That's how you get along with people, other people. So first four directed to God, the next six directed toward men. They asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Boy, they were trying to get him, weren't they? Which out of those ten are the greatest? What did Jesus say? What, what did he say? He summarized the ten commandments in one phrase. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment, by the way. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Sums up the whole Ten Commandments, because that's what they're about. What does Paul say? That the first characteristic, the first mark of a false teacher is what? They love themselves. The first mark of an apostate, they love themselves. Now, this is an interesting, interesting phrase. And I'm going to talk... The, the nation of Israel could not keep the Ten Commandments if their lives depended on it. Because every time they, they went out and people would influence them, instead of the nation of Israel being like God wanted them to be, they were always like the nation. You know, we preach all the time, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world, because the world doesn't love the Father, and the things that are in the world don't love the Father. So what are we to do? Be separate from the world. What does that mean? That means that when the world throws on you the philosophy of life, you are to recognize it, first of all, and you are to reject it. That's exactly what it means. Don't love the world system. Don't love it. 
If it, if it doesn't understand the biblical view of marriage, sexuality, if it doesn't understand human rights and the right to life coming from God's Word because people are made in the image of God, don't you dare love it. Speak against it. You're going to get persecuted. But don't you love it? Because what does the New Testament say? John the Apostle says that the whole world, the whole world system, First John chapter 5, here's the picture, you'll never forget it, like a cat sitting on your lap, sitting there purring. He says this, the whole world system lies in the lap of the wicked one. He's just stroking the cat. And all God's people are very tempted to climb up in the lap of the devil and the world system and be just swayed by it. So what are some of the things that the world system sways us by? Well, let me just read a few. This is contemporary, by the way. Critical race theory. What is that? You've been hearing about that in the news? Well, I preached on that and I pounded and pounded and pounded on it. Don't make me go back and repeat it. Critical race theory. Right here in a neighborhood next to you. A Virginia Tech professor made national headlines because she got on her syllabus to her students and apologized for her, her race. You hear me? You don't believe me? Look it up. She apologized and made national news headlines. Nobody wants to say anything. Can I say something to you this morning? Don't apologize for what color you are. I don't care if you're green. I don't care if you're yellow, black, or white. Do not apologize for how God made you. That is of the devil. You had no more control over what color you are than you had control over what you were named. And God loves you whatever color you are. Do you hear me? And He loves you whatever gender you are, male or female. Don't you apologize for that. Don't you ever apologize for that. Don't ever give in. That is ridiculous. Perilous times. You will be persecuted for not apologizing. Do you hear me? You might lose a job one day for not apologizing. But don't you dare apologize because that's like saying God didn't know what He was doing when He made people in His image and in His likeness. Critical race theory. Cultural Marxism. What is that? Well, I pounded on that too, but just a little reminder. It's where the academic world and the media world, both TV and academia, tries to brainwash people and overtake society and culture. And you do this by commercials, you do this by education, you do this by rewriting history, using diversity to divide, freedom of speech only for one side and not for the other, by spreading propaganda, and by sexualizing the children. And by the way, when you do that, you capture an entire culture and you lead them in your way. Have you all been following the headlines about all these parents, even up north, who are throwing a fit because their kids are now coming home learning about things they should not learn about in fifth grade. Well, it's about time somebody said something. Excuse me. We've sat back on our haunches forever. They've captured all the schools. And now they're in politics. They're in, in uh, 
Congress, they're in Senate, they're everywhere in America. You don't want to know why? Because Christians had no concept of a biblical worldview when it came to politics or voting. Because they were taught that the separation of church and state meant that when a Christian goes to work or anywhere else, they can never say a word. And that is ridiculous. That is not what Thomas Jefferson meant. It is in none of our official documents. He wrote that to a pastor who was concerned that the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England would come over and try to overtake America. And Jefferson said, we're not going to let that happen. It is not going to happen. The the United States will not dictate that its citizens become Roman Catholics or part of the Church of England. It's not going to happen. And so what did we do? They took that phrase, revised history, came back in, pointed out two people, Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, both who were probably the most least religious of all the founding fathers, and that's the only people you learn about in school. And what did they do? They showed that those two men were deists and they were uh, supremacists. And by the way, thank God for them. Thank God for them. You know, especially when you write, you use bifocals and you can't see anything. Thank the Lord for them. And by the way, tell truth in history. White people weren't the only ones that owned slaves. So did black people. So let's just be honest here. And they are actually the ones who sold their own people. Did you know that? We don't talk about that. So let's be fair, okay? Let's be fair and not revise history. Let's learn from history. Sure, America did some bad things. Sure, America was not perfect, and just like she's not perfect now. But there was no other nation ever like her, and that's why everybody floods across the borders trying to get over here by the thousands who are coming across the southern border right now, by the way. And why is this happening? Because there is no such thing as a biblical worldview. Now, boy, you say, boy, you are cranky today. I'm not cranky. I am not cranky. I I get passionate about things like this. But you want to know how difficult days come upon God's people? This is how. Difficult days come because there's no biblical worldview and you and I are trying to live in a society that doesn't see things like we do. But for, for the whatever it takes, let us know how we see it. And we don't see it their way. We see it God's way. Perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of themselves. The nation of Israel could not keep the Ten Commandments, and this is why they got kicked out of the land. You know their history. The nation divided into two. The top ten became Israel, Samaria. Jeroboam, their first, one of their first pagan kings, decided he was going to have his own golden calf in northern Israel so people didn't have to drive to church down the south. This is what happened, by the way. So they made him a golden calf up north, and the southern two tribes stayed down south. And God sent Hosea and Amos to the top ten. And by the way, Amos was an old southern boy. Went up north, preached, and they tried to run him down south. And told him, don't do this, Assyria is coming. What happened? Assyria came, pulled him out. Then you had the other prophets that come in. Jeremiah, Isaiah came to the south and said, don't do what they did. If you do what the top ten did, the bottom two are going to get it. What did they do? Listen to what Jeremiah said. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. 
with a point of diamond and it's engraved on the tablets of their heart. This is a play, by the way, on the Ten Commandments. What did God do with his finger? He, he wrote the Ten Commandments in stone with the finger of God. And God, God is basically saying through Jeremiah here that the sin of Judah has, has broken the Ten Commandments and they loved it so much that they wrote it on their heart with a diamond pen. And it's engraved in a tablet and on the horns of the altars. What, by the way, in the tabernacle, you know, the horns of the altars. What did people do when they grabbed the horns of the altars? That was a place you ran for mercy. You'd grab the horn and you'd cry out for mercy. And here God is telling them that not only is it on their heart, it's on the place where they call mercy, sin. While their children remember their altars and their ashram poles beside every green tree. Here you see the kids following the parents right in their sin. You say, that is so depressing. You are depressing me to death. I'm telling you the truth. So what are the characteristics? Lovers of self. Are y'all ready for me to fire down this list? Lovers of money. Love self. Love money. By the way, Monroe read this to us the other day in staff meeting. Let me read this. Characteristics. This is from David Levy of Friends of Israel, by the way. Lovers of self. Self-love heads the list of sins because human nature is always selfish. All evil desires spring from the craving to satisfy self. Number two, lovers of money. The yearning to be rich will drive the masses to accumulate as much wealth as possible. Lovers of self, lovers of money. Look in verse 2, boasters. People will brag continually and heap on themselves virtues and prestige they do not possess. Number four, proud or haughty. They will be pharisaical, puffed up with their own importance, proud of their achievements, possessions, or positions. They will look down on others with disdain, considering themselves superior. Number five, blasphemers. Verse two, the language will be offensive, abusive, rude, vulgar, and hurtful, and they will happily slander God and others. Wow. Almost sounds like TV today, doesn't it? Disobedient to parents. By the way, never in history has there been a time. You, you, you look at this. You may say, well, it's been terrible. Never in history has there been a time with so much homeless, no father in the home, no mother in the home, no parents in the home, and just rebellion in this regard. Disobedient to parents. Levy writes, they'll disregard parental authority, something we see happening today. Lack of parental guidance, control, and discipline will create a society filled with rebellious children who have no need to respect authority. Unthankful. They will be completely unappreciative of all they receive from their parents. This situation extends to social relationships as well. Number eight, unholy. They will have no respect for God, the Bible, or anything sacred and will live irreverently. By the way, there used to be a problem with divorce. There is no problem with divorce anymore. I mean, it still happens. But do you know what the new trend is? You just don't get married. Good shot, Chandler. Just, just don't get married. Just live together. 
unholy, unloving. The King James says without natural affection. What does this mean? Utterly devoid of natural affection for family will make it easy for them to betray relatives and those closest to them or even kill their own. Unloving. Unnatural. By the way, you know, and I, and I don't, I'm, I, please, please hear me for a minute. I'm not being hateful. I had a woman in, in one of my churches who had had multiple abortions. I preached on abortion one time and I just, I pounded the, come to find out she had had many abortions. My heart broke for her and I felt, I felt terrible because I was just, I was vicious that day. I mean, vicious. And some of you here may have had an abortion. Please understand that God will forgive you. And He can. And He does. And He wants to. But I want to say this. Abortion is the most brutal, unholy, and unloving thing that happens. And our country is infecting the world with it. We're pushing our policy on Mexico and all the other nations, even telling them we will not give them funding unless they pass abortion. Shame on our wicked leaders. Shame on them from the ground up, from the toe to the head. Shame on them. Taking the life of an innocent baby. Unloving. That is unnatural, by the way. Paul says, you know what's going to happen? This will be the characteristic of people in the last days. I'm going on. Unforgiving. Verse uh, 3. Callousness will make them continually hostile. They'll hold on to grudges and hatred, resisting any effort to reconcile their differences with one another. This sounds like the news media today, doesn't it? Slanderers. Verse 3. They will falsely accuse one another in public and try to damage reputations. Verse 3, without self-control, they will become even more undisciplined in their lifestyle, throw caution to the wind, and show no restraint when it comes to satisfying their desires and urges of their nature. They will live wholly to gratify themselves. Brutal or fierce. Verse 3, they'll live like wild, savage animals, fiercely pursuing whatever they desire without any consciousness of facing judgment from man or God. Despisers of good, literally, verse 14, literally, no love. They'll hate everything good, including people, laws, and standards, and they'll oppose anything good in society. You know, Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe, by the way, W-O-E, was a little Hebrew idiom that people used to say over a funeral. Woe to death, the death chant. Death to people that call good evil and evil good. And Levy here points out that they, people are despisers of good. Verse 4, traitors. This is number 15. They'll break and betray promises, trusts, and confidences, even though doing so jeopardizes their lives or their family's life. Verse, 16, or verse 4, headstrong. They'll act irrationally and recklessly without thinking of the consequences to themselves and others. Haughty, puffed up with pride, egotism, conceit, self-love. No one will be able to tell them anything. They'll think that they know it all. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
in their unbridled desire for pleasure, they'll be wholly controlled and absorbed by self-gratification. This does not mean they're without any consciousness of God in their lives. It just means that he will have no, no priority. None. Have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Verse 5. Despite all these characteristics, some will try to maintain a, quote, form of godliness. And by the way, I challenge you, the next time you hear people spout this stuff off, whether it's cultural Marxism, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's uh, abortion, whether it's this or that, all of this is done in the name of what? Justice. Are y'all following this? Rights. Rights. Good of society. Good of people. God's people ought to be opposed to every bit of that. Now, I'm going to make you mad this morning, but I don't have to preach for four more weeks. So you can get mad at me, and then you can have four weeks to cool off. But I'm going to say this whether I choke. A Christian should be, should be the most cautious person in the world when it comes to endorsing people that go against God's biblical worldview. Do you hear me? I mean, we're going to have to answer for this. Now, sometimes it may come down to the lesser of two evils. And you may have to narrow your way down. But God's people have a serious responsibility here in America to vote. We have a, we have a serious obligation to be involved in government. Did you know that? Stop sitting back on your haunches and letting everybody else overtake the school board and then complain about it. Get on your school board and stand up and say, we've had enough of this. Enough. Vote me in, vote them out, and we'll tell what's right. But we just sit back and let everybody else do it. And guess what? They are chomping at the bits. Get on the school board. Get on the county commission. Get in government and have your vote. We live in America. This is a republic. We don't have a monarchy yet. And our founding fathers set it up where the people are the ones who set the representatives in the office to say what they would do and what's right and wrong. And if the people didn't like them, they kicked them out. And by the way, they gave them the Second Amendment to protect themselves from their government in case they ever turned on them. Did you hear me? I know we don't hear that. That's why they put guns in the hands of the citizens. So that if the government ever tried to turn on their own people and tried to beat kings and monarchs, that the people could defend themselves against them. But we don't know that anymore, do we? We think we're just supposed to bow and go, oh, okay, We've, the such and such is in office. Oh, we just bow and say, yes, let us have that. We love it. No, we don't love it. We hate it. We hate it. We don't like your bloodshed on our nation. We don't like you endorsing death to unborn innocent babies on our watch. We don't like it. We don't like spending more than you make. We don't like you confusing what God said about marriage between one man and one woman. 
And we don't like it when you tell us that if we don't endorse your views, you're going to cancel us. Stop shoving it down our throat. Because we know what God said. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. That's fine. But we have the freedom of speech and we better say it. Sitting back muzzled like an ox waiting for the slaughter. Time to stop that. You say, well, they might take my job and my pension. Fine. If you lose your job for standing up for Jesus, you come and see me. We'll take up a love offering. You won't starve. There's more work out here than you could ever find. I mean, jobs everywhere. You say, oh, boy, you're terrible. I'm not terrible. Listen to me, folks. This is where we're at today. This is where we are. So what does Paul say? What are the targets? I was going to preach this section. There's the outline. You you write it down or go back online. This is what Paul told Timothy. Here are the characteristics of people in the last days and the targets they're going to... Look what he says. This this was happening in the church of Ephesus. I'm down in chapter 3, verse 6. Y'all are going to think I'm talking about women. I'm not doing that. I'm just reading what Paul said. What did he say? He said, this is what's happening with the false teachers in Ephesus. He says, verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households on network nightly news. Can I just say it? Everybody's sitting around watching the nightly news. And they capture weak-minded women and men. I'll just go ahead and add that in there. Who don't have anything else better to do but to watch CNN, NBC, ABC, and sometimes Fox. See, I'm giving all of them a little bit today. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always appeal to that, by the way. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Go on Google and find out anything you want to find. But never the truth. All the information you need, never the truth. Ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And now he gives an example. There were other people just like this in history. Here's a negative example. Paul says, Just as Janus and Jambers opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. By the way, Janus and Jambers, that's not mentioned in Exodus. That was passed down through Jewish oral tradition. Not one place is it ever written. Except in the Jewish writings, not in the inspired scriptures. But Paul knew their name. These two men opposed Moses while he was doing the greatest miracles. What were they doing? Opposing him. God's people are out speaking truth. What happens? Somebody else comes out and speaks error. And by the way, our voice is in the minority. Well, you know if only 6% of us hold a biblical worldview, we're in the minority. Does that mean we can't speak truth unless we're in the majority? No! Even among the 12 spies, there were only two that come back and said, we can take them. They were in the minority. Jesus was in the minority. Did you know that? At the end of his ministry, what did he say? Come to me, large flock. Is that what he said? Nope. Come to me, little flock. He just had a small group. God's word has always been in the minority. But that doesn't mean we don't speak with truth and love. 
Now, what does he say on it for a positive example? Say, so finally, you're getting something positive. I am. Verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all them the Lord rescued me. Timothy, you speak the truth. And you're going to get persecuted. And all who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. But the Lord rescued me. Paul saw handcuffs and chains and prison bars as jewelry. Jewelry. Didn't bother him at all. Because right at the end of this letter, he's getting ready to have his head chopped off. And he says, Timothy, get to me quick and bring my coat and my books. Because I know I'm going to die soon, but I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. I'm not afraid of any man. I fear God only. You know, by the way, isn't that what you try to teach your children? You always respect authority. You respect the the office of authority. Yes, sir. But don't you dare fear man. I don't care how big they are, how muscular they are, how tattooed they are, or how powerful they may sound. Don't you fear men. Even if you have to go to death, don't you fear man. Because God says the fear of man brings a snare. But you fear God and fear Him only. Because God is the one who's able to destroy both body and soul, not man. Man can destroy body. Man can't destroy soul. Go back and read some of the church history where some of the people were burnt alive for translating God's Word. Burnt alive on stakes. Put tar and pitch on them and set them on fire. And they sang hymns as they died. They were not afraid of man. Time for God's people not to be afraid of man. So what are we to be? Turn back in chapter 2. I'm I'm only going to focus on one. But I want to give you the outline. The first thing we are to be, not afraid, we are to be an unashamed worker. Verse 14, Paul tells Timothy what? He says, remind them of these things. Charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, but to be a worker who has no need to be ashamed. You can read the rest of that. The second thing is you're to be a clean vessel. Some of these false teachers and these false leaders were dirty vessels. And Paul gives this analogy. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Let me give you an analogy. In some houses, there are cupboards with glass plates. And they also have chinette. That, that's plastic, by the way, that you throw away. Okay? Some are for honorable use. You put them out for dinner or special occasions. And some for dishonorable. You put them out because you're going to throw them away. You're just going to have a hot dog and a little bit of chili, and you're going to sling it in the trash. And, and this is what Paul's saying. There are some people who are chinette, And there are some people who are fine, fine silver. Be the silver. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Christian, what's your job in this dirty world? 
filled with corruption and politics. What is it? A holy life. A holy life because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. A holy life. You are to be a clean vessel. But here's the one I want to take just a second in this hostile world that you and I live in when people are up in your grill ready to cancel you. How do you handle that? Practical advice here. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. Verse 22, So flee youthful passions. Every youth pastor I've ever heard preaches this, meaning, Timothy, run from sexual temptation. That is true. But that is not what he's talking about right here. The youthful passion is to do what? To win an argument. Timothy, you're going to go out and speak truth and somebody else goes, that's not true. And what, what is your natural response as a youth? You want to win. Paul says, don't be filled with pride. Remember what I wrote about the qualifications of an elder? He must not be what? Filled with pride, lest he fall into the condemnation of the devil. He, he has to be humble. So how do you do that? Paul tells Timothy, flee these youthful passions. I'm going to read here to win the argument. And instead, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord. And do it from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You know, by the way, sometimes arguments are not worth getting into. If you know someone's coming to stir something up with you, it takes great wisdom, doesn't it? You all know the proverb that says what? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And then it says answer a fool according to his folly, and lest he be wise in his own conceit. In other words, there is a time when you don't get in an argument because you end up looking like the fool. And then there's a time where somebody says something to you and doesn't know any better, and now you have a chance to step in and correct. So you are to be a gentle servant. Avoid ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. See, this is, this is a challenge right here, Christian. We, we must not be quarrelsome. By the way, I mentioned fundamentals and evangelicals back at the first of the service. I need to do a whole sermon on that so you understand the difference. But there are a lot of people who turn from, quote, fundamentals. We are fundamentalists, by the way, in our doctrines. But fighting over dress and translations and kinds of music turns people off. Don't be quarrelsome. And by the way, don't go out looking for fights. This is what he's saying. Don't run from them, but don't run to them. You must not be quarrelsome, but here's the key. Kind to everyone. Does this mean people who espouse critical race theory? People who espouse social Marxism? People who are for abortion? People who, who don't view things like we do? Is that what it means? Please say yes. Please don't be mean and nasty to people who don't believe like we do. Paul, the Bible does not tell us that we are to hate them. We are to be kind to them. They are ever learning, but not able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Did you hear me? Not able. They're blind. 
They're snared. So how do you win them? You don't argue with them, number one. Number two, you're kind to them. Number three, you're willing to teach them. You see it in the passage? Kind to everyone, able to teach. You're you're willing to share the truth with them if they're willing to hear it. Patiently enduring evil, number four. That means that what? If they say bad things about you or things that, that hurt you, what are you willing to do? You're willing to patiently endure evil, put up with it, don't fire back, don't try to win the argument, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Gentleness. By the way, how do you correct people? You do it by asking questions, not making statements. I believe abortion's right. Why do you believe it's right? Well, because a woman has a right to choose. Where does, where does that come from? Is it a life? Does it have a soul? Who made life? Where does life come from? What happens when a person dies? See these nice questions? I mean, you get right down to the issue. Kind. You're not going to change anybody's argument by being hateful and nasty. Able to teach, kind, correcting opponents with gentleness. And if you do that, if you do those five things, look what God's, God, Paul says, God may perhaps grant them a change of mind. That's what repentance means, by the way, a change of mind. God may perhaps grant them repentance, a change of mind, which will then do what? Look at the progression here. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. They might actually stop and go, well, that, that Christian is on to something here. What do you mean by that? And then you share the gospel Man sinning against the holy God and God's gracious act through grace, giving Christ on our behalf to give us righteousness that we could never earn and taking our sin and forgiving us. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 26, and they may come to their senses. They may. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by Him to do His will. I have to wonder my own self how many people you and I rub shoulders with every day who are captured by the enemy in His snare to do His will. In your Zoom meetings, I have to say that now, in your cubicles, in your neighborhood, all around you are people, get this picture now, They are trapped in the devil's snare and they're doing his will. By the way, do you know what a snare is? A snare was a hoop that you tie together in a rope and you set it out and an unsuspecting animal would come along and it would see some bait and it would look pretty good and it would stick its neck in the bait and it would tighten. And the animal could sit there with it with it barely tight, and it wouldn't die. 
But if that animal tried to run and panic, you know what happened? It would, it would end up choking its own self to death. And this is the picture Paul gives of the world that you and I minister in as we speak truth unashamedly, in love, on purpose, and being God's servant. We don't strive. We're gentle, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting those who are teachable so that God may perhaps change their mind and allow them to be saved. Now let me say this. That is a challenge. A challenge for us. We can't do that on our own. We must have God's help. You must. We must have the Holy Spirit living in our life, empowering us, enabling us in this hostile culture to respond the way God's servants are to respond. We are to be gentle servants. And we need to do it in grace. And I want to pray for you this morning that God will give us all, listen, all of us, a spirit of gentleness, passionate gentleness. We need to be passionate about the truth. We need to be gentle in the way we share it. God, help us do that. Father, thank You this morning for Your Word, which tells us the culture we live in and the response we're to have. And I pray, O God, that in a darkened-hearted world who lies in the lap of the evil one, You will have Your minority who are gentle servants who know the truth, who are able and willing to speak it with love and grace. Empower us, enable us, and encourage us, Lord, to speak for You. Thank You for our country, for the opportunity we have for freedom of voice and vote. But, oh God, help us not set back. We have for years on our haunches and do nothing. Help us get involved in our community wherever you have us, in our county, in our state, and as we encounter people who are hostile toward you or your word or your truth or your, your worldview, may we be a gentle servant, not quarrelsome and angry, but those who represent your character and your ways. And our ultimate prayer, Father, is that you will Take them out of the snare of the enemy and give them a change of mind that they may come to know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior before they wake up in an eternity without you. We thank you for this truth and thank you for this challenge. And Lord, even though we are in spiritual warfare, thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.